Today, I've decided I will not embarrass my mom and tell stories of her parenting and my growing up. I figured that's the least I could do for my mom today as she's with us. So really excited about that. Um, it is Mother's Day, and uh, I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to have a, you know, a, a Sunday where we celebrate parents as a whole? And we're going to talk about moms and dads. You know, it's one of those things, as you study the Bible, you find out that there's a lot more verses that talk to dads than to moms, but there's a lot of great stuff in the Bible about it. So we, we as Americans like our holidays, don't we? Did you know that yesterday was National Coconut Cream Pie Day, and I totally missed some opportunities there, I'm positive. Um, it also was National Birth Mother's Day. I never heard of this before. It's the day before Mother's Day, and it's the day that you celebrate moms who gave birth to children and, and then had to give them up to adoption. And so it's National Birth Mother's Day. So the rest of you, it's just Mother's Day. So I don't know if you were birthed or not, but I, I can't clarify how they named each of the holidays, but we're really glad that uh, we're able to celebrate moms today and, and appreciate the parents that we've had. Some of you are privileged enough to have your parents still with us. And others have had to say goodbye to parents over the last year or two or even longer. And so as we come to a holiday like this, we're often filled with different emotions, aren't we? We're filled with joy, but we're also filled with sadness. We can be filled with memories looking back as well as expectations looking forward. It can be a very challenging time for many. But today we're here to celebrate life. We're here to celebrate um, the parents that are here in this room and the parents that we've had. So as I prepared for today's message, I thought, I'm going to look through the scriptures, and I'm going to find that parenting story. You know what I mean? The one that you can read and go, I want to be like that parent. And so I looked in the Bible, and I looked some more, and I looked a little harder. Did you know I could not find one parenting story that I could read and just go, be like this parent in the Bible? I couldn't find one of them, and I'm like, that's kind of odd, because it's really important, isn't it, how parents raise up their kids? But I could not find a Bible character that was just the exemplary, quintessential parent role model that we could go, be like them. So that made a little bit of a challenge coming together this morning to talk about parenting. In fact, as I started looking at parenting, I found a lot of don't do this stuff. Now, let's be honest. As children, we find it really easy to look at our parents and say, I won't do that, or they shouldn't have done that. I mean, we can always come up with the, they shouldn't do that thing. But as we look at the Bible, that's all I could find there too. And I think my kids are probably saying the same thing, like, I hope I'm not like my dad, you know, when I grow up and I don't do these things. But I kind of went through the scriptures and I realized, okay, there's, there's Isaac. Yeah, well, Isaac played favorites. And Rebecca told her son to lie and deceive her dad. It's like, okay, we can't use them as a role model. There's, let's see, there's Jacob. I mean, he had a lot of kids. Of course, he favored that one Joseph guy, so much so that his brothers wanted to kill him. So what does that say about the way they raised up the brothers, that they'd want to, like, destroy their, their, their younger sibling? It's like, okay, that what was like living in that household. Now, some of you, how many of you grew up in a household with more than three boys? Anybody? Three boys. Yeah, so that can be a pretty hostile environment. I mean, three boys, that's going to be a lot of energy going on there. Imagine 12. And apparently they didn't like Joseph very much. So I'm like, okay, well, maybe I should skip the, New, the Old Testament. Let's just fly over to the New Testament and see if we can find some kind of parenting example in the New Testament. Yeah, the thing about the New Testament is it's really about Jesus and his story and what to do with that story. So there's not a lot except about Jesus which is really cool. It's what it should be. So I think the only example I could find that kind of hinted at parenting comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. In 2 Timothy, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm convinced is also in you. Now, it doesn't say that they passed it on to him. But it's kind of implied, right? I mean, I wouldn't make a big doctrinal thesis on that statement that obviously they passed it on to Timothy, but it's implied that there was this faith in grandma 
that was also in mom that was then passed on to Timothy. And that's about the best example I can find of the scriptures showing a household where people passed on their faith or lived in a certain way that would honor God. So I thought, okay, I'm going to have to take a different approach. Um, Let me just think about other things that have been taught in churches about parenting. And that got me really discouraged. I mean, I kind of got dismayed when I started thinking about the things that were taught. Here's one that I've, I've, you wouldn't hear it in these terms. I tried to alliterate it so it would sound Baptist, um, that proper parenting produces piety. In other words, if you train up your kids right, they're going to follow God. Like it's an equation, right? If you do this and this and this, you will get this. Can I tell you something about kids? They are not math. They had never have been and they never will be. And there is no equation that says you can plug this into here and this into here and come out with that. Amen? All right, you parents know this to be true. You definitely know this to be true. Let's just, I'm amazed in my own household how I can have two boys that grew up in the same house that are very different from each other. You know what I'm talking about? Even in the Bible, we get this, right? Adam and Eve, what were their kids' names? Cain and Abel. They were a lot different. And Seth, thank you. Cain and Abel, and then Seth. (laughs) Very different people. And one obviously lived in a way that honored God, and one didn't. So here you have a, a home with the same parents right outside the garden talking to God, and still you have the first murder in the Bible from one of the kids. Okay? Obviously, the math didn't work in that household. Jacob and Esau, yeah, the math didn't work in that household either. Jacob's family, didn't work there. How about Jesus and James? Is it even fair to compare? I mean, really? Can you take, like, the Son of God and compare him to his earthly brother and say, what were they like? I mean, James, like, totally did not believe in Jesus and, and, like, totally rejected him and told him he was a loony until after Jesus rose from the dead, and then he comes on the scene and teaches an exact opposite way that Jesus is like, love your neighbor. And James is like, you're an idiot if you don't understand that this is how you have to live. And it's like, there's just totally opposite people. Same household. I don't even know if it's fair to compare them. I probably shouldn't do that. Um, I think that James will get a very special place in heaven having to live in the shadow of his older brother, Jesus. I can't prove it theologically, but I just think so. So I've learned that even if, you're, even if as parents you fear the Lord, you cannot guarantee that your children will fear and love the Lord. And I know we like to hold on to verses like Proverbs 22.6, right? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. How many of you have heard that verse before? It's a great magnet, right? Goes good on the fridge, good as a bumper sticker, a t-shirt, plaque on the wall, But it's not math, people. It's not a guarantee that if you do certain things, this is the outcome. That's not the way Proverbs are meant to be. You can't take every proverb as as a mathematical equation. They're they're meant to be uh, lessons to teach us principles that could happen and hopefully will happen, but are not guaranteed to happen. So I thought, well, okay. I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some examples in the Bible of where people lived a certain way, and because they lived a certain way, their kids turned out a certain way. And I turned to the book of Kings, <laughs> and that theory went out the window. Um, David, a man after God's own heart, had a son named Adonijah who tried to take the throne from him. Yeah, that wasn't a good scenario. Uh, Solomon, wisest man that ever lived. Yeah, he had, he had Jeroboam who made golden calves for Israel to worship. I mean, you just can't go, well, the parents are godly, so the kids will be godly. It didn't even work with the kings. Matter of fact, by the time you get to second kings, it gets even worse. It just spirals downhill. You have Jotham, who's the son of Uzziah. He did what was right in God's eyes in second Kings 15. And then he had a son, Ahaz, one of the most wicked, vile kings you could imagine in the history of Israel. Um, he did not do what was right in the, in the Lord's eyes in second Kings 16. Then you have Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz who did what was right in the Lord's sight. So you have these generational gaps. And even if you follow those, you can't say you'll have a good generation and you'll have a bad generation and you'll have a good generation. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Keep reading the book. You'll see the storyline repeated over and over and over again. So so now that I've depressed you as parents on Mother's Day, I think we're ready to look at what the scriptures really say. If there's no great illustration of be like this parent, there must be a reason for it. And, and if there's no magical formula that you can follow, there must be a reason for it. And if, 
if you can't look at the lineage of a, of a family and, and see that there's, because the parents believe, that the kids will believe, there must be a reason for it. There's got to be a lesson in there for us to learn as parents that we've probably just missed or forgotten along the way. So what can you do to make sure that your kids follow God? Well, I've heard it said in churches that if I involve my kids in church, they'll follow God. So I'll plug them into youth group, and I'll plug them into Sunday school, and I'll put them in weekly kids' ministries. And can I say all those things are awesome, but they're no magic pill for raising godly children? Um, Matter of fact, neither are Christian schools or summer camps. They can be great tools, but they don't produce godly children. First of all, it's never the job of the church or a school or a camp to raise your children. Let's just throw that out there. When it comes to teaching our children about God, it's never the primary, primarily the responsibility of the church. Whose responsibility is it? The parents, right, right. Now, can the church be a help? Absolutely, and they should be. Can camp be a help? Camp has changed so many lives. I'm not minimizing these ministries, but I think we've elevated them to the place of it's their responsibility versus my responsibility as a parent. Um, I've heard people say to me things like, I need to get my children to church because they need to learn about God. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I mean, drag those kids kicking and screaming, I'm going to get them to church because my kids need to learn about God. Can I just say that there's something more significant than learning about God, and it's learning to know God? And while that can be reinforced in churches, in, in camps, and in schools, it's best learned at home from the parents and the way that the parents live. Does the Bible teach that if we involve our kids in public worship and sign them up for camp, they'll follow God? Well, not really. Let me give you another really bad example. There was this high priest named Aaron, first high priest ever. God commissioned him and put him in place and said, you're going to teach my people how to worship. And after they get all the laws, his two sons go in and offer an illegitimate sacrifice and get zapped by God and killed. So here's two kids that are living in the house of the high priest who are in the temple that know how to offer, worship, offer sacrifices and everything, and God kills them off because they wouldn't follow God. All right, but he didn't have much time to prepare for that. He was still, you know, a, a wilderness wanderer. He didn't have a lot of two years. So let's fast forward a little bit. Let's go to this guy named Eli, who was a priest who lived in the temple area. He had two sons. Anybody remember their names? Hophni and Phinehas, right? He had two sons. They were horrible. This is the reason that pastor's kids have bad reputations. They were horrible kids. They grew up in the church, so to speak, and they were bad. And then there's this other child who was delivered to Eli that didn't belong to him physically. There's this woman, Hannah. We're going to look at her in a little bit. And she had a child, and she dedicated him to God and gave him to Eli in the temple and left him there for Eli to raise. So obviously, Eli already has a track record of probably not being a great parent. We would say by our standards. We don't know. But his kids certainly didn't reflect it. And yet, we have Samuel who grows up as a prophet of God in the same household in the temple. So I can't even say that, you know, if you spend enough time in church doing godly things, that your kids will turn out following God and loving God. There's no guarantee for that. Um, of Samuel, by the way, it was said in 1 Samuel 2.26, by contrast, <laughs> by contrast to Eli's sons, by contrast, the boy Samuel grew up in stature and in favor with the Lord and with, this, and with people. So here's this group of three boys raised by the same priest in the same atmosphere at the temple all the time. So they'd be like, you know, I was born in Sunday school. I went, you know, if the church doors were open, I was there. I was involved in all these ministries. And you can still have kids who choose to go off the handle and do what they want and ignore God, and you have other kids who are blessed by God. So is there any hope after all this? Now that you see there's no magic formula, there's no pill you can swallow, no magic bowl, there's no mathematical equation that says this is how you have godly children. Is there hope? Of course there's hope, right? But there's never a guarantee, and I want to be clear on that. Never a guarantee, but always hope. In our society, we like equations. We want, matter of fact, if you look at news bites that are out there in the media, you're going to see, you know, 
top 10 things you need to know about this or the top three things doctors say about this. We want lists that we can follow. We want advice that we can go, I did this and this and this and this so I can get a result. And the Bible is not that way. God is not that way. Even though we want to take his commandments from the Old Testament and put them in a list, say, if I do this and this and this and this, then God will do this. It's not the way God works. Godly parenting, above all else, means as parents, learning to trust God with our children. Let that sink in for a minute. There's three characters I want to bring to your mind that will help us understand a little bit about what it means to be godly parents. The first one is Abraham. So Abraham, we'll talk about him in just a minute, he offered up Isaac as a sacrifice to God. There's Hannah, who offered Samuel as a gift to God. And then there's Joseph and Mary, who offered Jesus as the firstborn, and then redeemed him by paying a sacrifice, which is what was commanded in Exodus 13, and later took him to Jerusalem at the Passover when he was 12 years old and ready to be responsible for his own faith. And I want to look at those three examples for a few minutes together. The first one is Hannah and her husband Elkanah. There's a name you don't see very often. So if you're looking for baby names, Elkanah, just throwing it out there. Um, just um, Hank, can you come here for a second? I have something for you. Would you like to open it? Okay. Sorry, it's man wrapping. Laura wasn't around to help. I know you can because you're a man. And I know you'll know what to do with that gift too. Just rip. Do it. It's your chance. You think you know what to do with that? Yeah? You think you know what to do with that? Okay, well, that's yours. You can take it. Thanks for helping out today. You're welcome. If you think you can put it together quietly before the end of the service, as long as you're paying attention, that's fine. I want to see it when it's done. I couldn't find Harry Potter, sorry. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 1, I want us to turn there. We'll come back to that in just a minute. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. We're going to talk about Elkanah and his wife. Elkanah had two wives the first named Hannah, and the second Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go from, uh, from his town every year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hopni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and each of, of her sons and daughters, but he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he favored her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Two times we're told in this passage that God had kept Hannah from conceiving. That's important. Keep that kind of in the front of your, of your mind for a minute. So Hannah, who's being provoked and tormented by this other wife, is uh, really discouraged and desperate. In 1 Samuel 1.11, making a vow while she's in the temple, she's pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all of his days, and his hair will never be cut. And then in verse 19, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to worship before the Lord, and afterward, they returned to, Ram to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And sometime later, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. I want us to start by recognizing that all kids, all children, 
are a gift from God given by God. As much as we want to think that we were responsible for that little bundle of joy, um, and in part we are, but it's only because of God that they truly exist. There are many women who are never able to have children. This passage is not saying that if you go and worship in the temple and pray hard enough to God that he will eventually give you a child. Okay, I want to be clear on that. This is not the magical formula we've been talking about there. It's a reminder that God is sovereign and we are not. David reminded us of that last week about the sovereignty of God. Thank you, David. Meaning that God is in control, and he's, he's not just in control of kings and kingdoms. He's in control of the womb. He's in control of our lives. Read the Psalms. Before I was born, God, you knit me in my mother's womb. Before there was even a breath in my mouth, God knew us. Your child is only your child because God has chosen to give you a gift. Children are a gift from God. Now, some of you are like, well, that's not fair. Well, let me ask this. I gave Hank some Legos this morning. How many of you feel it's unfair that I didn't give all of you Legos as well? Not how many of you wish you got Legos. It's how many of you think it's unfair that I didn't give you Legos as well? Connor does, but he's my son. Okay. <laughs> Your birthday's coming in February. <laughs> well, but why? Why is it not fair? I mean, why, why would you think that it's okay? Because it was a gift. And as the gift giver, I have the right to give that gift to whomever I want. And as long as I keep the perspective that life, that children are a gift from God, then it's going to be really hard for me to be upset if God chooses to give one person a gift and not me. It will still hurt. And we see that in Hannah's life, and you'll see that in any woman that you know that is not able to have a child that wants one. But we must remember that God is sovereign, and life is a gift. And the gift giver has the right to choose whom he wants to give that gift to. Not only are kids a gift, you know they're, they're your inheritance? <laughs> Psalm 127.3, sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, and the offspring are reward. You know that your kids are your inheritance? And no, there's no exchanges. There's also no tax on them. Well, kind of. We should note that also that just as I gave Hank Legos this morning, Hank has the instructions. Are you going to follow the instructions to make it just like what's on the box? Yeah. Now, how many of you get Legos and you follow the instructions? Mostly. Okay, right? Yeah, so you start following them. You're like, oh, I got this. And then you realize, oh, wait a minute. Their head's on backwards. I must have done something wrong. So you start, you start taking it apart, and you go again. Just like Legos come with instructions, parenting actually comes with instructions. God's Word does give us instructions on ways, things that we should be doing as parents. As a matter of fact, there's a lot more that's said about fathers. Apparently, fathers struggle with parenting more than moms. Uh, Ephesians 6.4 is one of those verses. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You might, your version might read, um, fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Does it sound a little more familiar? But bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't use the word wrath and admonition too often, so I kind of use a different translation there. So dads, don't stir up anger in your children, but teach them instead about the Lord. Now, let me encourage you this morning that while children may be a challenge at times, amen, while children may be a challenge at times, and let me tell you, they're going to become more a challenge when you realize that they're just like you, and you have to figure out how to deal with that. While children may be a challenge at times, they are also a gift from God, a very special gift from God. And gifts are meant to be enjoyed. They're meant to be unwrapped. They're meant to be discovered, not just to be ignored or pushed aside, not to be a burden to you, but to be enjoyed. And I want to encourage you to unwrap, as parents, the gifts that God has given you and realize that each gift is different. And each gift will bring you a different kind of joy and a different kind of challenge. And that's exactly 
what God wants you to do. You have the opportunity to develop and invest in that gift and to help it become what its creator intended. If Hank follows the instructions, he'll end up with a Lego creature that will look like the Lego people intended for it. I believe that as parents, if we invest in our children the way God wants us to, we have the best chance of them turning out the way God intended for them. But remember, unlike Legos, children are not a mathematical equation. They're not something that you can just build in and get a result out of. They're something you invest in, and then God has to do the work from there. We'll get to that because we're going to go to our next example, and that's Abraham. Oh, man, Abraham didn't think he was ever going to have a son. Abraham was one of those people that was thinking, well, God, you've given gifts to everybody else. What about me? And then God says, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make you wait a long time for it. So much so that Abraham and his wife decided that they were going to go about their own way to have a son, and that didn't work out too well for them. So in Genesis chapter 21, Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1, the Lord came to Sarah, and he said, uh, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time God had told him. Now, I find that verse, verse 2, awesome, because at this point, Abraham's around 100 years old, and that's when he's considered old, right? In his old age, around 100, so I still have a long way to go. Just something to hang on to. Abraham named his son who was born to him, the one Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And when Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. And then you jump to chapter 22, and God tests Abraham. After these things, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, he said, well, I'm right here, God. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, read chapter 22, and I'll tell you that Isaac is not killed, okay? I want you to be okay with that. Um, God doesn't have him follow through with killing his son. But when you jump to the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 17 through 19, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he received the promise and yet was offering his one and only son, the one whom it had been said, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. He considered God able even to raise someone from the dead, and therefore he received him back, figuratively speaking. Now, we're going to kind of unpack that just a tiny bit, but I'm sure that that moment on the mountain when Abraham had the altar set up and his son on it, and he's, the son's like, Isaac's like, okay, I see the wood. I see the, but where's the, where's the sacrifice? Dad. Dad. And Abraham says, God will provide. Yeah, dad, he did. You waited a long time for me. I mean, that had to be a really memorable moment on that mountain. But it's a reminder that just as God is the giver of life and the opener of wombs, he is also the sustainer of life and able to protect and to bless. It's a reminder for us as parents to trust God with our children and to live in faith as parents. Because we cannot protect our kids. We cannot truly be everything that they need to, us to be. We are human. We cannot... Um, we want our children to follow God, and the best way to teach them that is to be models ourselves of trusting God. And Abraham, as he offered up Isaac, was trusting God enough to say, I know that God made this promise, and if God wants me to do this, I believe God is even able to bring my son back from the dead, because God is bigger than even death. That was his faith, we learned in Hebrews 11. It wasn't that he was going up there going, I'm sure God's going to do something right now, God, okay, okay, God, it's time. Do it now. God, do it now. You know, he knew that even if he took that life, that God would, could bring Isaac back from the dead. That's faith. And I'm sure that just as memorable as it was for Abraham to be in that spot, it was also very memorable for Isaac to learn what it means to truly trust God with your own life. Psalm 78 says, My people, hear my instruction and listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare wise sayings, and I will speak mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known, and that our ancestors have passed down to us. We will not hide them from our children. We will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might 
and his wondrous works he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob and set up a law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach to their children so that a future generation, children not yet born, might know. They were to raise, their, raise and tell their children so that they, will, so they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works, but keep his commandments. Then they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal and whose spirit was not faithful to God. There's this command and this idea of passing on to our children what we believe of making sure that our faith is lived in such a way that our children see it. Not so that they can say, oh, look how, look how you know, awesome my parents were in following God, but so that they can understand who God is and want to follow him. Now, let's go back to that math. It's not an equation. You can live your faith in front of your kids, and they can choose to reject it. As a matter of fact, I would expect that every one of our children, at some point in their life, will reject God and then have to choose God for themselves. Or not. But as parents, we need to learn to trust God with our children. Our children are a gift from God, and we need to learn to trust God with our children. I would say that the the point in my life where I really had to learn how to trust God with my children was when I dropped them off at college. And you realize you have no control over anything they do from sunrise to sunset, and all you can do And I say all you can do, it's one of the most powerful things you know. All you can do is pray. That's the point where I really hit home for me, because up to that point, I felt like I had some kind of control or say. And can I say this? I am not in control. (sighs) That feels good. You should say that every now and then, just to remind yourself. I am not in control. Even with your children, God has given you a stewardship over your children, but ultimately, you are not in control of what their faith will be. That's in God's hands. So let's go to Joseph and Mary. You ever notice that when people have babies, they look at the baby and, oh, he's perfect. Oh, she's perfect. You don't hear that about two-year-olds, do you? <laughs> Anybody else notice that? Oh, that three-year, my three-year-old? Perfect. I mean, if I had somebody say that, I'd probably buy him a t-shirt. I really would. You just don't hear about it. So So what would it be like to parent the perfect child? That's Joseph and Mary's story. We read in Luke that Joseph and Mary followed all the commands of God regarding circumcision and buying back Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's there's this, I don't want to call it a policy. There was a commandment that the firstborn of the Jews was to be taken to the temple and given to God and then bought back. So you would give an offering. The offering would stay but your firstborn son would be an offering, and then you would buy them back because the people were redeemed. Um, so they were to redeem their firstborn sons. It goes back to the Exodus and the firstborns being spared, firstborn of the Jews being spared. Um, that goes back a long ways. They followed all those things. But then there's this moment in Luke chapter 2 that I have to share with you. It's just kind of a reminder that even though Jesus was both God and man, his parents were certainly human. Um, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Luke 2, 41. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. And after those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Well, why were you searching for me, he asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they didn't really understand what, what he was saying to them. So then they went, they went down with, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and people. Now, as a parenting story... 
There's a good side. Every year they followed the commandments of God and they went to the festivals. They did what God required. But there's this bad side. They lost the Son of God. Think, right? And they lost him. They, they traveled a day. It's like the first home alone thing. They were, they were a day away and they realized, where is he? So they go back and look for three days. Jesus is on his own for four days in Jerusalem during one of the busiest seasons of the year. Festival, people from all over the world there. Bad moment. I remember one year our extended family went to watch fireworks in another town, and there were a lot of people there. And on the way, as we were leaving from the fireworks, one of the kids got separated from us. What a panic. There's people everywhere. You can't see this little kid running around. Everybody's screaming, calling, looking, running through the park, trying to find him. <laughs> when the uh, child was found, there was much rejoicing and much other stuff. People were not happy. I'll just put it that way. And I think you have a little bit of that in Mary's response. Like, whatever you're doing, don't you realize what you put us through? You're supposed to be with the traveling party. Now, in fairness, Jesus was 12 years old. It's the age of accountability. He was responsible for his own actions, so he figured he's doing nothing wrong. The implication, uh, well, as, as we think through this, um, parents, it's wise for us to remember that we cannot make our children follow God and love God. At age 12, the Jews had what they called the age of accountability, where each child was really responsible for determining their own path with God. The Jews realized that each child would have to choose for themselves. And we should be smart enough to know that our children will come to that same point. And we live in a society where our kids often stay with us until they're 18, 20, 50, whatever that age is. So we often feel like they have to do what we want them to do, even when they're in a house. But while they're in your house, realize they're going to make their own decisions about whether or not they believe in God. They will come to that point, some at earlier ages than others. Some will wait till they leave your house and then choose. It's wise to remember that we cannot make our children follow God and love him. We cannot force them. And there will come a time in their lives where they will have to choose. And some people, some children will do it quietly. Some children will never question it. Or they'll have a doubt in their mind and then they'll just move on and they'll never be this big, big rebellion or anything like that. Some children will be very quiet and they'll act like they're okay with, you know, what, your, what my parents believe, but they really don't believe it. And so they'll kind of, until the opportune moment, and then they'll just kind of like split and say, yeah, you know what, I don't believe that dad or I don't believe that mom. Others are going to be just like you and be very outspoken if you're an outspoken person. They're just going to be like, no, I don't buy it. I'm against it. I'm on my own. Okay. You have to expect that. And I would say that was one of the biggest concerns I had as a dad and as a pastor is how my sons would respond to God. What would they do with God? Would they be Hopney and Phineas? I hope not. Or would they love God and follow God? I can't make them do anything, especially at this age. But some children will rebel against what you believe and hold to as your faith. Parents, I want to encourage you not to take that personally because they are not rejecting you. Or they might be. They might be rejecting God because in a way to rebel against you. But they're not truly rejecting you. They're rejecting God. And we have to learn to trust God with their faith. We can't coerce them, we can't force them, we, can't, we can try to persuade them, but we can't truly persuade them to want to follow God. It's a reminder that we need to love our children, but we also need to trust God for their faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 says, As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. The implication here is that fathers and mothers should be encouraging, comforting, and imploring our children to walk in a way that would honor God. But we can't make them. And that was part of his point. We encourage you to live this way, but that's all we can do is encourage you. We can't make you. Um, in our modern culture, parenting honestly seems like a bolt-on. We work, we take care of our houses, we go to church, we parent. It, it's like this part of a, of a step of a process to bolt on to our lives. Um, once our children are school age, parenting means being a meal provider, a taxi driver, 
a lunch maker, a homework monitor, a cheerleader. I mean, it becomes a lot of different things. Uh, but modern parenting has become like a career. When you look back at what parenting used to be, it was more like an internship or an apprenticeship. Because you didn't go off and do your job and your kids went off and went to their school. If you were a farmer, guess where your son was? He's out there on the farm with you. If, if you had a house and you had a daughter, guess where she was? She was with mom. She might be out in the field at times. Or she might be with mom learning how to take care of the things at the house. The kids spent time with their parents learning the things of their parents. So there's not a lot in the scriptures about how to parent because everybody would just did it. It was part of your life. Your kids were with you and you taught them and then they went on their own because you're with them all the time. So they would see your faith. If you were a shepherd and you're out in the field, guess what? Your kids were out there too and they could see how you treated that sheep and what you talked about and the things that were important to you. You had time for conversation. It was a mentoring relationship. This idea of, of parenting is just like, it's something that I do, like I'm going to learn how to parent. You never really learn how. You live your life of faith before God, and you, and you include your children in that. It's only been the last hundred years where we've compartmentalized parenting, kind of like we have adulting, right? Like it's a separate thing from everything else in life. I went to school, now I'm adulting, whatever. You can't just make it a separate thing. It's part of life. Prior to the, that 100 years, parenting meant working with your kids all day long. And having children is about teaching them through our words and through our examples what it means to love God, to fear God, to know God, to follow God. That's what it means to be a parent in God's eyes. Having children is the act of what? Procreation, it's called, right? Who's the original creator? God. And when we procreate, we are actually doing something that God did first. We're imitating God. We're being image bearers of God, in a sense, in creating the way he created, because he's given us that ability. And in a similar way, the way that we live needs to be an image bearing of God to our children, to our families. We need to continue to model and imitate our Heavenly Father so that our children can't miss it. So as we transition to our dedications this morning, I want to go back to that proverb that we read in the very beginning. We know that there's no equations, there's no math, there's no magic formula, there's no little pill you can take that'll make your kids love God and want to follow him. So you can't do it. And you can search the scriptures and you can follow God with all of your heart and you can even be known as a person after God's own heart, and you cannot guarantee that your children will. So as parents, the most important thing we can do is to learn to trust God with the children he has entrusted us with. Proverbs 22.6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now that phrase, train up, an interesting word. It actually shows up very few times in the Old Testament, and where it does show up, it's translated as the word dedication. It's the word that talks about Solomon dedicating the temple to God. It's the same word for dedication. Kind of sounds a little awkward when you read it that way, but dedicate your children to God, and when they are old, they will not depart from it, is the hope that we have. We dedicate young children. We, in our church, we don't baptize infants. Um, we believe that baptism is for believers. So once you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, then you're baptized. So we don't baptize infants, but we do have dedications. And the dedication really kind of goes back to some of the concepts of the Passover and of, of giving your children to God. It goes back to Abraham and giving your child to God and trusting him with that. It goes back to Hannah. It goes back to Mary and Joseph, to all of these things. Um, a dedication is about recognizing that what you have is a gift from God. And as a parent, the best thing you can do is trust God with that gift and live out your faith to the best of your ability in the power of the Holy Spirit and pray that God will call those children to be part of his family someday.
So what is the dedication? It's all these things we've talked about this morning. It's not an action of the child, but the words and actions of the parents. And as they publicly seek God um, in their task of parenting, it's presenting the child to God, acknowledging that the child came from God and that the child belongs to God. It's acknowledging that parents, um, that the parents are, are um, understand that they have a stewardship with their child, that God has entrusted you with something very special. And it's a covenant that the parents are making to do their best in the strength of the Holy Spirit to teach their children about God in the words that they say and the lives that they live. That's what a dedication really is about. And so this morning, um, we were going to have two dedications this morning. Unfortunately, uh, I got a message that came through just before the service, and it appears that the McMahons will not be making it today um, because Jamie got sick after they got here. So they got right to the parking lot, and then Jamie came down sick, and they took off and headed home. So uh, so Bill and Jamie won't be able to join us this morning for this. We have a couple other parents that want to have their children dedicated. But this morning, we're going to be dedicating Eden, Stelts, um, which really means we're dedicating David and Ellie as much as we're dedicating Eden. So if David and Ellie and Eden would like to come join me up here, This is going to be a trick. I'll try to put on my mask with my microphone here. I think this is our first mask dedication. It'll be interesting. So Eden is two months old, right? Congratulations, Eden. Um, I, I've tried to figure out who Eden is most like, David or Ellie. And I have to say that I've come to the conclusion that she's just like both of them. Like, matter of fact, if you hold Eden one way, she looks like David. If you turn her, she looks like Ellie. It's crazy. I mean, am I wrong? No, that's, that's absolutely true. It's, 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 it's like one of those 3D pictures. If you just look at it. like the face she's making, too. Yes. So if she's smiling, who is it? No, don't go there. Um, so, she's screaming, it's me. Yeah, there you go. It's funny because uh, my dad will agree. <laughs> I'm so glad you're like your mother. <laughs> so uh, I've I've learned just from the little bit that I've gotten to know Eden um, that she is very much like both of them. She can be very chill. <laughs> she can also be very hangry. And she is absolutely adorable and funny and awesome. And uh, we're so, yes, you are. So hard to concentrate. I know. I, like, I <laughs> forgot what I was going to say. So um, as, we, as we come to this time of dedication, again, it's not a time about Eden per se, other than the fact that David and Ellie are up here because they want, they desire for Eden to grow up in a home that knows God and loves God, and also that it's their desire that, and hope that someday God will call Eden to be his daughter and that she'll accept the gift of Christ that he provided for her. So um, this morning, it's more about them standing up here saying, we thank God for this gift, and we want you as a church family to help us nurture and love this gift to help her know God, um, and to help them live in a way that would point Eden to God. So uh, David and Ellie, as we stand here today, do you understand that this is not your creation, um, that it's God's creation, and he's given this gift to you as a stewardship? Is that your understanding today? Um, do, you, <laughs> do you think it's possible to live as role models for Eden so that she can know God through the way that you treat each other and, and her? Probably not? Okay. But is it your desire to try? Exactly. I, I phrased it that way on purpose because I knew David would pick that apart. Um, yeah. Um, I'm so thankful uh, for both of you and for, for Eden, and I'm really thrilled because I know that Eden is 
in a home right now with two people who love God and each other. And uh, I'm just excited to see what God is going to do in your lives because you will find that she will change you a lot. Um, well, you'll change her a lot too, but that'll, that'll stop after a little while. And I'm excited to see what God does in her life through you guys as well. And so knowing that it's your desire to, to raise her up in a way that would honor God, I'm going to uh, spend a moment praying for you guys and for Eden. And, uh, and I'm going to ask the church family to do that with me as well. So I'm not going to have you come up and lay hands on them because it's the whole, you know, whatever thing. So, uh, but I'm going to come behind you both, okay? So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life. We thank you that you have blessed uh, and chosen to give this gift to David and to Ellie. We pray, Father, that they would find joy in unwrapping and learning about this gift that you've given them. That in the years to come, that they would find their joy in you, that they would find joy in passing on your love to their daughter. We pray that you would uh, protect their marriage, protect their family from uh, the accuser who will want them to believe um, so many things that there is not true about the way that a godly home is. And we pray that you would protect and guard Eden's heart, that you would help her to be receptive to you and to your spirit. And Father, we pray that you would draw her to you one day, that we could rejoice in her becoming your child. We thank you for this day, and we thank you for this family. In Jesus' name, amen. So. Now she looks like me. Right? Um, so David next week is going to have 10 points on how to train up children, which, which you can only do before you have them at a certain age. After that, it all goes out the window. Um, now, actually, you're going to pick up a Nehemiah next week, right? So, uh, so thank you for being here. Congratulations, you guys. We, you. we love you guys and are so thrilled for you and for Eden. Thank you for sharing her with us today. And uh, with that, I want to thank you all for coming out today. Um, congratulate them, uh, do so responsibly, I guess is what we would say nowadays in uh, culture. And uh, also congratulations to each of you. There. Congratulations to uh, each of you moms who survived raising kids. Uh, they should have a shirt for that, I think. Uh, right? Right? And uh, we appreciate each of you and the commitment that you have. Um, thank you for being here with those. And Actually, who's, who's, you're the most current parent of a child who has been born, but who's due next? You are? When is that? August 30th. Um, there's somebody else who's, who's going to be, when are you due? Wow, November 24th. So we're going to have a lot of little babies here reminding us of the goodness of God and the gift that he's given. So uh, congratulations to you moms as well. Uh, your journey is so exciting, and it gets even more exciting. And, uh, can, and thank you so much for being here. So have a great day, and Lord willing, we'll see you all soon. <laughs>